Hi, and welcome to the third part of four special edition EVJ podcasts. These are based on the review of the year session originally given at this year's Beaver Congress, and they cover the recent literature in four different categories. The moderator of the session was Beaver's president, Jonathan Pycock. And in this podcast, Pamela Wilkins will review the past year's literature based on critical care. Pamela is a diplomat of internal medicine and critical care and is a faculty member at the University of Illinois. Um, The first paper, these are all EVJ papers, uh, and the first paper is by uh, Shigeru's group um, and it's uh, primarily from uh, Florida before he moved to Georgia. I'm really glad I've never had to compete with Dr. Jaguer for a job uh, because I'm sure that he would get it. <laughs> He's absolutely brilliant and a kind, wonderful man. So um, the reasons that they performed the study really were, you know, as I stated, there's really not a lot of good information talking about um, the association between the common disorders that we see in these sick decline neonates and what their outcome is when we consider a large population of goals. Um, and certainly, you know, if in the 80s through the 90s and into the early 2000s, um, University of Florida was one of the biggest and most populated neonatal intensive care units um, in the world. Um, so the objectives of their study were to describe the relative frequency of some of these disorders in a large population admitted to a neonatal intensive care unit and to figure out which of these disorders, diseases, whatever you want to call them, um, and other factors could be associated with um, non-survival. And so, you know, which one of these things and which one of these indicators um, will send a flashing red light up, and when we start, you know, we want to know when we're starting to throw good money after bad. Um, And and we wanted, they wanted another question um, that they asked, and I think this is one of them, more important things that has come out is we've all had the impression that our outcomes um, treating these sick goals have improved a lot uh, since the 1980s when we started as a movement uh, until now. And those of us that do this kind of work, oh yeah, we're doing much, much, much better. Uh, but that's how we feel, and you know, feelings aren't always reality. So um, they did take a look at it in this uh, single center study. So the study design was a retrospective study, so it has the problems associated with any retrospective study, especially when you go back as many years um, as this study one goes back. Um, They they have a fairly good medical record system down there. I've worked with it in the past, and it's relatively easy to retrieve things, which I can't say is true in many other institutions. So um, I know they had good data, but it is retrospective with, with those flaws. Um, The methods, they decided on equine neonates less than or equal to 14 days of age that were admitted between 1982 and 2008. So the data they acquired um, and actually started to assess almost uh, 10 years ago, um, but that doesn't mean that it's a a report. It just took a while to get it organized and published, and I certainly can appreciate that. I wanted to point out one thing here is when you read reports talking about outcomes or diseases or frequency of problems in equine neonates, there are so many different definitions of what is an equine neonate. Um, some are less than 30 days, some are less than 29, 21 days, some are two weeks and under. 
Um, some are um, zero to three days of age. Uh, they're called the newborn, and then the neonate starts from four to 14 days of age. So it's not always comparing apples to apples when you're looking at these studies. Uh, not as much of a problem with a single um, study, single site study, but when you're looking at multiple papers comparing them to each other, be careful of the details. They used a multivariable logistic regression to identify disordered clinical parameters and laboratory values, variables that were associated with non-survival um, or natural death. And I'm gonna mention this again, but there's a lot of debate, not necessarily in the literature, but between people doing this kind of work as to what do we do with the animals that are euthanized? Um, because we very seldom let our patients experience nat natural death. Uh, and I think that that's humane of us, that we want to alleviate the suffering before it reaches that particular point. But what is the decision-making process that goes into euthanasia and how frequently is it determined by financial considerations? That I've run out of money, this animal's not worth it, insurance isn't gonna cover it. Um, I'll just breed a new one. We've all heard those types of arguments. And making that distinction of is this truly a euthanasia because of grave prognosis, or is this a euthanasia because you've got a poorer prognosis and they don't want to chase any more money after it. And so it's very different from human survival studies where almost always everything is done up until the point of natural death. And, and I don't think we actually touch on that point Often enough, but we need to be aware of it when we're looking at these studies. So uh, they had over a thousand souls included in the study. So in, in my experience, this is one of the biggest um, studies ever reported for outcomes in souls. Uh, it, it is retrospective. There is a prospective study that's out there that reported on close to 700 souls that was actually a multi-center study that, that had some excellent data also. But for its purposes, this is a good number. So of those souls, 73% approximately survived to be discharged from the hospital, um, and about 30% were non-survivors. Um, of those non-survivors, uh, almost 80% of the non-survivors were euthanized, um, and only 20% died. So it just illustrates that we don't tolerate natural death. Um, we don't want our animals to suffer that much, and we do tend to intervene, um, and many times appropriately with euthanasia prior to that point. But it does skew the data, and it, it makes the results a little less reliable. They look at age and admission um, sepsis score. Now, sepsis score is its own controversy because it was a wonderful thing. I stood at AAEP back in 1986 when um, Ann Keterba and Barb Brewer announced the first sepsis score. I think that ages me a little bit. And there was a lot of excitement in the room. Oh, we can quantify it now. We can, you know, we've got a diagnostic tool. It turns out it's not so great. Um, it's very, very uh, uh, site dependent, and it has not held up in studies that have evaluated sepsis score. So, uh, sepsis score, when you're reading, we'll, we'll talk about this again, but a lot of these studies talk about categorizing souls as septic or sick non-septic, and we have a real problem that needs to be solved with the definition of what is sepsis, and we'll, we'll touch on that next. So um, the variables that were, were retained uh, in a multivariate model for non-survival were positive blood culture, um, low neutrophil counts, 
um, hypothermia, not hyperthermia, different than any adult. Um, abnormal bicarbonate concentrations on a blood gas, abnormal PCO2 on a blood gas, um, and the presence of infectious orthopedic disorders because lots of times surgeons don't use them in the nose. Not to say it more. Um, and, and sepsis score uh, also was a poor indicator. So the adjusted odds of survival, this is really a take home point, that were admitted in the 2000s were approximately um, 3.4 times higher um, than the goals admitted in the 1980s. So the odds of survival are between three and four times better in the 2000s than they were back in the 1980s. And this was very reassuring um, that we think we've been doing better, but here we've got documented evidence, at least at one site, they're doing better. And, and I think that most of us that do goals are expecting close to an 80% discharge rate of holes alive at the time of leaving the hospital. And in the 80s, it was pushing 60%. So um, I, I think that's good news for us all and, and good news for owners to have. You can't read these tables, uh, but we have been supplied with copies of the um, manuscripts. You can look at them. Um, but, but table one is uh, looks at primary diagnosis, age, sepsis score, proportion of holes with each of these things with positive blood cultures, and um, proportion of survivors, and, and it goes through a bunch of different things. When you look at it, um, one of the most common clinical diagnoses is sepsis, and it shows up, actually it's fairly low on this particular list, and that's because they looked at primary diagnoses, and then they had secondary and tertiary diagnoses, um, and with their definition of sepsis, a lot of folds that actually had neonatal encephalopathy or other problems were also septic. And so that's why you see, I, I think, a lower proportion here, again, their definition. So the primary diagnoses, diarrhea, ne neonatal encephalopathy, disease-coded prematurity, um, sepsis and SIRS, pneumonia, colic, infectious orthopedic disorders, NI, um, all problems, belly button, uroperitoneum, and non-infectious orthopedic disorders, which I think, you know, we can think of those as the contracted tendons and the flexural deformities and the superangular deformities. So the, the effect um, was statistically significant of primary disease category on age of admission. Um, so sick folks tended to be younger, um, babies and septic ones. Sepsis score, um, foals with positive blood cultures and a proportion of survivors. Um, in table two, um, this is where they identified that non-survivors had lower temperature. So hypothermia is a problem. This is all data obtained with admission and significantly higher sepsis scores than survivors. Um, and non-survivors were more likely to be bacteremic, septic, and have IgG concentrations of either less than four or less than eight grams per liter. So the you know, standard of let's check that IgG is, is, is great. There's not enough time for me to get into why I think IgG is a marker of appropriate immunity and colostrum ingestion, not the end-all and beat-all. That's a, um, the diseases and complications that were associated with non-survival, prematurity, dismaturity, pneumonia, infectious orthopedic diseases, renal failure, um, meningitis, and a few other disorders. So um, these things kind of stay out there. The variables um, that were predictive of non-survival uh, were positive blood culture, low neutrophil count, hypothermia, alterations in bicarbonate and PCO2, um, again, infectious orthopedic disorders and 
Well, when I'm talking to clients, I usually say, you know, one joint we can deal with when it starts to get to be two, three, or four, I think the prognosis goes down proportionally to the number of bones and or joints that, that are involved. Um, the decade of admission actually forced out of the final model, but it was certainly highly predictive of survival. Um, and so what they kept in the final model were, was, were those things that we were discussed and that final model that they looked at um, correctly classified about 80% of the cases. So, so fairly, fairly good. This is the big take home graph I think from this paper that looks at uh, survivors versus non-survivors um, between the 1980s and, and up to 2000. And you can see here the progression in survival continuing, continuing. Now the number of folds that we're seeing uh, increase, but if you look at the proportion uh, that the um, death numbers are kind of steady, and uh, if you look at the, the odds ratio just increased um, between between the four, three point four percent. So we're doing better, folks, and uh, we need to keep doing better. Um, Non-survivors included folds that died naturally or were subjected to euthanasia. Folds were classified as septic, um, and that another paper we're going to talk about does the same thing. If they had if they had one or others of the following criteria. One is a positive blood culture. Um, two is more than one site of infection based on psychology, culture, or histopathology results. And three, post-mortem evidence of more than one septic process by either culture or histopathology. And these are actually poorly um, designed or thought about features for defining <coughs> sepsis. Um, sepsis actually in human medicine has got a very specific definition that requires clinical signs of systemic-wide infection, uh, inflammation, or SIRS. And we know that neonates, um, equine neonates, can be transiently um, blood culture positive and be completely normal uh, and not have infection. That's data that's come out of Colorado. So we do need to keep working on the sepsis definition. Um, and, and I think the conclusions are, are fairly clear. Um, basically, we're doing much better. Um, then there's a, they, that same group uh, with a little bit of shifting in um, authors and the order of authorship looked at outcome in 94 hospitalized foals diagnosed with neonatal encephalopathy. And I think this is very, very pertinent. There's a lot of discussion and work going on currently, both experimental and clinical, um, looking at neonatal encephalopathy, and it's a very poorly defined syndrome. The reason they performed the study um, was that uh, it's the most common neural abnormality in neonatal folds. Clinical course rarely characterized. The objectives were to describe the factors associated with non-survival in that population of folds bearing that diagnosis. The study, again, was a retrospective cross-sectional clinical study with the flaws that uh, retrospective studies have. Um, and the methods were, again, 1996 to 2007, foals less than 14 days of age, and they love multivariable logistic regression to identify um, clinical parameters, lab values, and therapeutic interventions associated with non-survival. So the 94 foals, the median age of admission was 12 hours. They tend to be young. Um, the most frequent identified clinical signs are those we would expect, abnormal udder seeping, abnormal suckle, not standing, abnormal GI activity, abnormal consciousness, and seizure activity. 80% uh, of the folds that were seen over that period of time survived to be discharged from the hospital. 
with 19 dyers subjected to euthanasia. And the variables that they found associated with non-survival were um, serum total calcium concentration, so not ionized, but total calcium. The serum activity of al alkaline phosphatase, which I think that that's an interesting thing. I don't know that I'm going to take it home and worry about it. Um, recumbency, number of concurrent diseases, and use of vasopressor inotropes. Um, and using that model, they correctly classified 92% of the cases. Um, if you actually look at the logistic regression model to predict and look at the odds ratios, um, one of the things that you'll see is most predictive where the highest odds ratio is going to be vasopressor or inotropies right here. Next is recumbency, and we know that, you know, uh, down folds can be dead folds. Um, and if you've got a lot of other problems going on, they become um, additive, and in some cases, they're actually uh, multipliers of each other, and it, it's, not, it's not usual to have only a single problem in the fold. It's more common to have several. Um, the calcium was interesting, um, and alkafos, when you look at it, because it's got a number um, less than one, although barely less than one, this is actually somewhat protective, but the effect is really, 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 really small. Um, so I'm not going to worry about alkafos when, when I go home. Um, so the most frequently identified clinical signs, we, we talked about abnormal utter-seeking, um, inability to stand, so abnormal gastrointestinal motility, abnormal consciousness, and seizure activity. They did look at therapy, and that therapy is a big discussion. When I started, I thought DMSO was a wonder drug, you know, and I could do anything with DMSO in the 1980s. You know, the first down full I got that was my own, you know, they only had $500, and I said, you need that $500 in 24 hours, and I'll have this thing on its feet and nursing. And I gave it DMSO, and I was very lucky it jumped up and started to nurse, but um, essentially it was dehydrated, hypoglycemic, and septic and treating those other things allowed it to get up and start nursing, but I, I thought it was DMSO. I haven't used it in about 20, 25 years. It stinks. Um, so, I, I just don't, there's many reasons why I don't like it. But they looked at mannitol, mag sulfate, and I use mag sulfate. Um, I also use vitamin E, but in the mares, and uh, don't have used DMSO. They found no significant difference between survivors and non-survivors by how they were treated. So that makes us all feel real good. Right, we can you pick your boys and do whatever you want as long as you give them good nursing care, they're going to be fine. Um, non surviving foals were more likely to receive directed therapy, which means they had very specific problems with very specific treatments, including mechanical ventilation. Uh, because it, we do see these guys that just forget to breathe, um, they're easy as heck to ventilate if you've got a ventilator, but they're sicker. Um, respiratory stimulants and uh, vasopressors and inotropes, which are usually indicative of severe shock when we reach for those kinds of drugs, which means they're much sicker, and that's probably why they're more likely to die. So 11 non-surviving bulls, they had severe pneumonia or other forms of disseminated sepsis or sepsis-associated complications such as vascular thrombosis. Um, they're of the bulls that, that didn't survive. Um, ten had uh, necropsies done. One full died after it was discharged and did not um, get a necropsy. And they, ten of them had neuronal necrosis, degeneration of the CNS. Am I supposed to stop right now? 
Okay, I'm almost done. I'm good, I promise. Okay, six were um, septic, so that goes to the, you know, what I tell the clients is the dummy folds were going to do great on their own, but if they get septic, because frequently they're at risk because they haven't ingested colostrum um, or they've aspirated because they're not nursing well, if they have those problems, the prognosis decreases. Um, one fold did have a spinal hematoma, but the pathologist, I guess, did not distract the brain or take a look at it, so a pathologist's choice. Um, and one fold had a gastric rupture associated with a mesenteric root volvulus, which probably can be related to um, neonatal encephalopathy. They do get dismotility um, associated with it and could have contributed to this, but that's what killed it. <clears throat> so in concurrent diseases other than sepsis, um, they're more likely to have pneumonia, uh, be premature dysmature, have a patent which downfolds get a patent I consider it to be normal, and I warned the clients about it, I said, this too shall pass. Um, eventually it will stretch and go away. We don't have to do surgery on it. It doesn't need to be addressed that way. Medicine can fix it. Um, limb deformities, where sometimes we do need a little input from some surgeons. Um, and, and colic, and definitely sometimes we, we need help with that. Neurocarium is a surgical problem. Um, in my hands, trying to manage it conservatively or medically is an abysmal failure. And there were 15 other types of disorders that you can see in these folds. Only 14 folds had a clean diagnosis of only neonatal encephalopathy. So what they concluded is most of the therapies that have been recommended um, are just anecdotal. And uh, you know, again, pick your poison. They don't seem to make a difference. The only therapy that was retained in the final model and that was a negative um, implication was vasopressors or inotropes. Um, the odds of non-survival if you get vasopressors 19 times higher than foals that didn't receive them. So when you're reaching for, you know, norepinephrine or you're reaching for thorbutamine, that's not a good thing uh, with these guys in terms of prognosis. Um, and again, shocker, multi-organ um, system dysfunction. Large um, number of years, large number of clinicians, changes over time in therapies um, had impacts. And, uh, but we all have the impression that nursing care, good nursing care, I love my nurses, good nursing care is one of the most important things that contribute to both improved survival over um, th three decades now and the great outcomes um, that we see in these dummy folds. So, um, good good uh, outcome for most foals with their dummy folds. A uh, few things that you can look for in terms of um, outcome, and uh, I'm going to stop there, I guess. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much.